Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. That was lovely, Caitlin. Thank you so much. I've never heard that song before. Gratitude. And we're certainly grateful to God for you and for everybody who contributes musically to our service. It really does make a difference. Certainly appreciate as well the uh, opening set of hymns, ties in very well with the message today, which as um, Deacon Jan mentioned, we're going to continue in the book of Hebrews. We'll do uh, Hebrews 7. Uh, When we started this study, it was my hope that we would complete the book of Hebrews before Passover. As it turns out, this will be the last uh, study that we do on Hebrews before Passover, so we made it halfway. We made it halfway. And it's interesting, Hebrews has 13 chapters. And we're in chapter 7, so we're right in the middle. So We've done six chapters, and then we'll have another six chapters after this. And Hebrews 7 really is the heart of the matter. So this is perhaps one of the most important chapters in one of the most important books. And it covers this mysterious man called Melchizedek, which uh, Daniel uh, mentioned in, in Psalm 110 in his reading. Who is Melchizedek? Some say he's just a man that is unknown to us. He's a mysterious man. Others say that it's Seth, that he was uh, seventh in the line and and lived around the time of Abraham, and he was serving in the function of high priest when he met Abraham. And others yet say he was the king of Salem and the king of the Jebusites who lived in Salem at the time. And yet others say it's Jesus Christ. So so who who is Melchizedek? That's what we want to cover today. Let's begin, though, in Hebrews 6, verse 1, where we covered, we covered Hebrews 6 last time. And in verse 1, remember the context here was uh, Paul was upset with the Hebrews that they were not further along in their spiritual development. Having been Christians for some time, he would have expected them to be teachers, and instead they needed milk. And he said that he wasn't going to slow down. He was, in fact, going to cover this very difficult subject around Melchizedek. And he says here in verse 1 of chapter 6, we're going to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ and go on unto perfection. And this word perfection is teleotis, which means completeness. So we're going to go on unto perfection. And if you just look at Hebrews 7, and we'll just uh, jump in verse 11, to see this perfection or this completeness that Paul is alluding to. Verse 11 of chapter 7, he says, If therefore perfection or completeness, were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek, as Daniel was reading to us. So so if perfection or completeness was achieved through the Levitical priesthood, then why would there be a prophecy that another priest would come after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron. So these Hebrews are considering defecting from Christ and feeling good that they would have Judaism. They would hold on to Judaism and their, their temple worship. And he's saying, let's go on unto perfection. Let's go on unto completion. The, the Levitical priesthood is not the whole story. You, you have half the story. Let's get the other half. And the other half is going to come to us through Melchizedek. Back to Hebrews 6. And and we'll go back and forth, but whenever we're in Hebrews 7, I'll just keep your finger there because we're we're always going to be coming back to Hebrews 7. Uh, Hebrews 6 and verse 17. So we're going to go into Hebrews 7, but let's get the context. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's us, that's these Hebrews, all Christians, God really wants to show us 
the immutability of his counsel. It will not change. And he confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to do what? To lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. And that really is a fundamental theme in Hebrews. Theme number one is that Christ is superior. Theme number two is we must endure. And that endurance comes from the hope that we have. So we have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. So the Hebrews are facing severe persecution uh, from the Roman Empire as well as from the Jews. And, and we don't know the exact details of the persecution, but it is severe. And, and we're going to, they have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. That's, that's fundamental. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. That's what gives us our stability. That's what enables us to face anything, anything at all. And we count it all dung. It's all nothing because we have this anchor of the soul. And it's this hope which is both sure and steadfast and which enters into that within the veil where the forerunner is for us entered. So the forerunner has entered for us within the veil. Even Jesus made a high priest forever. This is our high priest forever. Jesus has been made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is not a Levitical priest. This is not an Aaronic priest. This is a high priest after another order. This word order is taxis. And it means a regular arrangement in time, a fixed succession. And if you think of Luke 1, you can turn to Luke 1 actually quickly, Luke 1. Luke 1 and verse 8, remember the order here of the priests when uh, John the Baptist's father was serving, and it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. So all the priests had an order that they followed. They would serve in the temple for, I, I believe it was two weeks. I'm not exactly sure. It was two weeks, yeah. Uh, and they would have their schedule, and that was their order. And so they would serve, and it was a lot of work, a lot of work that they had to do. In this case, according to the custom of the priest, verse nine, uh, priest office, verse 9, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So that incense had to be constantly burning. The showbread had to be constantly replaced. There, were, there was a lot of work involved in the priestly duties, and they had their order. So that's one meaning of the word order, a fixed succession, a schedule. Thayer's goes on, and it says another definition here is the post, the rank, or the position which one holds in civil or other affairs. And since this position generally depends on one's talents, experiences, resources, taxis becomes equivalent to character. So he's been made a high priest after the taxis of Melchizedek. So after the character, the, the rank, the status of Melchizedek. Now, this Melchizedek, is highly unusual. He's mentioned in the book of Genesis, and we're going to go there in a moment. But what's unusual about him is the silence surrounding him. He's a very, very significant figure, and he just appears, and nothing is said about where he comes from. Nothing is said about his genealogy. Highly unusual. Every significant figure in Genesis, the author, Moses, goes into great detail about their origin and their, gene their uh, genealogy. Here, this very significant figure shows up, and Moses says nothing about his genealogy. And yet, out of this silence, Paul makes a great meal out of this silence, that no one else touches Melchizedek. He's mentioned again in Psalms that there will be this uh, king after the, who is also going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But that's it. He's sort of, there's somebody you just read over. 
because you don't really understand it. And yet the apostle goes into great detail on Melchizedek. So the question that I have is, how would he know all of this detail that we're going to go into about Melchizedek when nothing is said about him? He's a man of mystery. And yet Paul has so much to say about him. I'm going to propose that we look at 2 Corinthians to see how Paul could say so much about this man that the scripture says very little about. Second Corinthians 12. Paul is defending his ministry to the Corinthian church. And he says this beginning in verse 2. I knew a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself, about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell, or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one caught up to the third heaven. So Paul is saying, I I was transported into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I cannot tell, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul is telling us that he was transported into the heavens, whether in the body, that his whole body actually went there, or whether it was in the spirit, he cannot tell. But he knows what he saw, and he knows what he heard. And that has informed his ministry. And now where everybody else can read over Melchizedek, Paul saw something in heaven, Paul heard something in heaven that he says, wait a minute, let's go back to Genesis and let me tell you about Melchizedek because you have to understand Melchizedek in order to understand Christ. In order to understand the priesthood of Christ, we must understand Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews 8, just to further this understanding of Paul. Hebrews 8.1, which is where we're going, after everything we go through, and Paul has a very convoluted way of writing. I actually want to do a study of Hebrews where I write what Paul actually is saying in one column, and in another column I put all the parenthesis, all the parenthetical thoughts, all the tangents. He's constantly going on tangents and then coming back to what he's actually saying. So in Hebrews 8.1, we're going to go through Hebrews 7. But he says in Hebrews 8.1, and this is the NASB, now the main point in what has been said is this. So, so everything that we're going to study in Hebrews 7, here's the main point of it. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. If you were a high priest, if you were a Levitical, or, sorry, an Aaronic high priest, You're not sitting down. You are working. These beasts have to be slaughtered. They have to be cut up. They have to be burned. They have to be offered. You're sweating. You're you're dripping in blood. You're working. This is is difficult work. the, The main point of everything we're saying is this. We have a high priest who's sitting down. The work is done. It's done. And he's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Remember, Paul was transported to the heavens and he saw things and heard things that he cannot tell us everything. Verse 2, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So remember, the Levitical priesthood was, was, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Initiated. Is that the word? Initiated. Something like that. Uh, The Levitical Levitical priesthood came into being when God moved into the tabernacle. So at the end of Exodus, after they built the tabernacle, according to the instructions given to Moses, then God moves in, and then the first order of business is to establish the Levitical priesthood so that they can facilitate man's coexistence with God. But that tabernacle was not the true tabernacle. Christ is in the true tabernacle. And then verse 3. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. 
For if he were on earth, like the Levitical priests, he should not be a priest in, in heaven, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. So we have priests on earth who offer gifts according to the law, but Christ is not on earth. Verse 5, these priests serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So there's things that Paul saw in heaven that gave him a perspective of what's going on on earth with the Levitical priests. They seem to be stumbling. Let me have a bit more of water. Levitical, there we go. So these things, these priests that are serving are an example and a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle, God said, See that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. So what we're hearing here is that there's a true tabernacle in heaven, and Moses had to build the tabernacle on earth according to the pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. And the same way the Levitical priests serve on earth, we have a priest in heaven that is serving in the true tabernacle. That's the the main point. So the main point is that this priest is a real priest in heaven. uh, Chapter 9, verse 23, just to put a final point on this. Chapter 9, verse 23 It was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. So we on earth, we would have the Aaronic high priest once a year enter into the most holy place on behalf of the people to seek forgiveness and propitiation for the people. But we have a priest that is entering into a holy place not made with hands, which are the figures of the true. So the tabernacle was a figure of the true. But we have a priest that's entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, in the end of the world, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what we see here is a high priest of a different order. High priest of a different order. Who actually does the work of a high priest. Which is that when God moved into the tabernacle, he's now dwelling with Israel. Israel is a sinful people. In order for God to coexist with them, there had to be the shedding of blood. They cannot come into God's presence sinful. The life is in the blood. So the blood had to be shed. The high priest presents the blood to God, and then God can dwell with the sinful man. We have a high priest that has that, that tabernacle process was just a figure of what really had to happen. And that is that we have a high priest who is greater than Aaron and whose sacrifice is greater than the sacrifices of the tabernacle. That he has actually taken his own blood and presented it to God the Father as a propitiation for us. So with that, let's now look at Hebrews 7. First of all, the name Melchizedek is taken from two Hebrew words. The first one is Melech, which means king. And Sedek, which means righteousness. So Melchizedek, Melech Sedek, Melech Sedek, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So verse seven, or verse one of chapter seven says, "For this Melchizedek." And so, again, when you see this word "for," Paul is it's a sort of a God. Paul is explaining something. So remember, we, we left off at verse 20 of chapter 6. He says, where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever. Jesus has been made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now he's going to explain something to us. 
he says, for this Melchizedek, and then there's a whole bunch of parentheses, which we're going to cover in a moment, but to get what he's saying, he's saying that Christ has entered into the Holy of Holies, he's made a high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, for this Melchizedek, and then drop down to verse 3, the second half of verse 3, abides a priest continually. That's what he's saying. So Jesus Christ has been made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek forever because Melchizedek abides a priest continually. Okay, let's go back now and go into the parenthesis. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High. So he's a king and he's a priest. King of Salem, priest of the Most High who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So there were some kings that were slaughtered. And on the way back from this slaughter, Melchizedek met Abraham. So let's see this slaughter in Genesis 14. Genesis 14, and it just begins kind of giving us the landscape. There are nine kings involved. There are these uh, five kings that have been subjected to four kings. And they serve them for 12 years. And then after 12 years, they're tired of it. They're tired of paying the taxes. They're tired of paying the tribute. And so they rebel against these four kings. And it doesn't go well for them. And breaking in at verse um, 8... It says, and there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zebolim and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And they joined battle with them in the vale of Sidon. Verse 9. With Shador Lamar, the king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariad, king of Elisar, Four kings with five. And the Vale of Siddam was full of slime pits. So if you're going to go to battle in this landscape, you need to know where the slime pits are. It's a mistake to go to battle and not know where the slime pits are. That's going to be problematic. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. So they fell in the slime pits. And they that remained fled to the mountain. Verse 11, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, so they've been defeated, and they've taken all the goods and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom. So you remember uh, Lot dwelt there because both Lot and Abraham were were growing in wealth, and their people and their cattle were colliding, and so they decided they would separate and Abraham said to Lot, you, you choose whatever you like. And Lot saw how fertile the land of Sodom was. So he chose the best land, and Abraham took the worst land. And now Lot has fallen into trouble with these people in Sodom, or as a result of living in Sodom. So they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that had escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew. So for some reason, this person knew to tell Abraham, or Abraham at the time, maybe Abraham had a great reputation of wealth in the area. For he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan, And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. So what you have is these kings, and, and, you know, more like mayors, kings of small nations, and Abraham with his 318 men. And these kings have subdued Sodom and Gomorrah and the other nations, but they took Lot. So Abraham immediately gets to, gets 
to it to rescue his, his nephew and goes after them and subdues these kings. It's the slaughter of these kings. And verse 16, he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And now verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return. So it says that, that the king of Salem went out to meet him after his return. But before the king of Salem met him, the king of Sodom met him. The king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Shidar Lamar and the kings that were with him at the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. So Sodom went, the king of Sodom went to meet uh, Abraham, or Abram at the time. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the Most High God. So now we have Abram meeting the high priest and having a meal with him of bread and wine. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered your enemies into your hand. So this slaughter of the kings was supernatural. One, one king, I won't even call Abraham a king, but he's got 318 men. He's a man of significant wealth. Goes after these other kings. You know, uh, five kings couldn't slaughter four, but Abraham could wipe them all out. And so the high priest now blesses Abraham and tells him that God has delivered him, the enemies, into his hands. And Abraham gave him tithes of all. So what I want to point out here, well, I'll, I'll leave it for now, but notice this, that Abraham gave him tithes of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons and you take the goods. Fair deal. You've, you've helped me. You've rescued my people. Just give me my people. You can have everything. So some iPads in there. Maybe a Mercedes, a few Mercedes, you know, some nice goods in there. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to the shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkol, Mamre, let them take their portion. So let them eat. You know, they've done work for you. They've rescued you. Let my men eat what, have their meals. And then let these men take their portion. I'm not taking anything from you. If I have a choice between Sodom and Salem, I'm going with Salem. I don't want anything from you. But notice... In verse 20, when Abram meets Melchizedek, there's no conversation about who are you and why are you in my way? You know, the king of Sodom I know, but who are you, king of Salem? What do you have to do with any of this? He just meets him and he pays him tithes. Back to Hebrews 7. And it's not an offering. Some of the commentaries say he gave him an offering. It's not an offering. He paid him tithes. Tenth, a tenth of the spoils. Tenth of what he had. Hebrews 7, verse 2, speaking of Melchizedek. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of everything. Melchizedek, first being by interpretation, Melech Zedek, king of righteousness. So first and foremost, he's the king of righteousness. And after that also, king of Salem, which is king of peace. So, you know, I think if you were to ask the scholars, then they get all scholarly and it gets very confusing. But I'm, I'm a simple man. I like to just read the text and believe the text. And I think if I was to ask any of the children, who's the prince of darkness, we wouldn't be confused. You'd know who the prince of darkness is. 
If I ask who's the Prince of Peace, we wouldn't be confused. We would know who the Prince of Peace is. Who is the King of Righteousness? Who can have this name? Melech Zedek, King of Righteousness, King of Peace. Scholars want to say, well, he was the King of Salem. Salem was a pagan nation. It was run by the Jebusites. These are pagan people. King David had to go in and wipe them out to establish his headquarters in Salem. So if he's a king of righteousness and his subjects are pagan doing filthy things, I'm afraid king of Salem and king of righteousness don't go together. Either he's going to be the king of these Jebusites, but he can't be the king of righteousness, or he's the king of righteousness and these cannot be his subjects. So I think here, king of Salem, well, let's go to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 and verse 6, a very familiar scripture. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting everlasting Father, the Prince or the Chief of Salem, the King of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. He abides a priest forever. He's a king forever. There shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with Zedek, with righteousness. So he's a king of righteousness. To establish it with judgment and with Zedek, from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So I think when it says king of Salem, first of all, it's king of peace. But secondly, there's a spiritual dimension here. In the same way it speaks of Satan as the king of Tyre or the king of Babylon, where there was a physical king there, but Satan was called the king of Tyre. In the same way, Christ is the king of Salem. And it's clear that he chose Jerusalem, and David would eventually establish his kingdom there. But this king, to me, is very clear. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of Zedek. He's the king of peace. Back to Hebrews 7. Verse 3 says this about Melchizedek. He is without father. He is without mother. He is without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now the scholars look at this and say that what Paul means is that nothing is said about his father. Nothing is said about his mother. Nothing is said about his descent in Genesis. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek says apator means fatherless. Amator means motherless. Agenealogetus, which means no descent. That's who this being is. He has no father. He has no mother. He has no no, no descent. No genealogy. The scripture cannot be broken. If the scripture says that this Melchizedek has no mother, no father, no descent, but what we really believe is that, well, he actually did have these things. It's just that the author in Genesis didn't write about them. Well, in the resurrection, when everybody comes up and says, oh, yeah, Melchizedek, Melchi, oh, yeah, we know Melchi, yeah, he's the guy down the road then the scripture is broken. We can't teach from Hebrews in the resurrection because people would say, yeah, we know the king of Salem. I know his father. I know his mother. Scripture is broken. So it's a man, it's a being that has no father, no mother. Is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. And we will be teaching this in the resurrection. The rest of verse 3. They say that again, but made like unto the Son of God. Aha! It doesn't say he's the Son of God. 
it says he's made like unto the Son of God. Okay? Daniel 3. Daniel 3 and verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spoke and said unto his counselors, Didn't we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, True, O king. He answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Ah, it doesn't say he's the Son of God. It says he's like the Son of God. So can we say, well, you know, it's just another human being that just happens not to be burned by fire and has the ability to protect the other three men from the fire? Or is it obvious that this is the Son of God? Revelation 1. Revelation 1. Revelation 1 and verse 13, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. Is this like unto the Son of Man or is it the Son of Man? So this, this language, let's go back to Hebrews 7, this language that says, but made like unto the Son of God, we can't take that language and say, see, it's not the Son of God, because it says like. Well, Scripture many times, it's the style of the language, many times says, like the Son of God, or like the Son of Man. So verse 3, Hebrews 7. He's without father. He's without mother. He's without descent. He has neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like unto the Son of God, he abides a priest continually. And that's the main point. That Christ, the, the order, the Levitical order, or the Aaronic order has, a, has an end date. You serve so long. This is your schedule. Or you serve until you die. But, but the, the priesthood has an end date. So Christ is now being made a high priest of a different order. This order has no end date. This order is continuous. This order is eternal. That's the point. He abides a priest continually. And that's what the Hebrews have to understand. That they have a high priest who's not going anywhere. He's not going anywhere. And so we can have a hope that's anchored in this priesthood. Verse 4. Now consider how great this man was. And there's no man in, in the Greek. That it's just consider how great this one was. doesn't say he's a man. Anthropos means man. It doesn't say anthropos, it says hutos. Just consider how great he was. Unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. So although everybody is a descendant of Abraham, there's a commandment that the other tribes have to pay a tithe to the Levites. Numbers 18. Let's see that commandment. Numbers 18 and verse 21. To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service, which they perform. The service of the tent of meeting. So there's a, the God's economy here says that everybody has their job and everybody earns a, a living based on what they do. But the Levites are serving as priests. So the way that they will get paid is everybody will pay them a tenth in return for their service. 
So in, in return for the service of priesthood, they get paid the tenth. Now look at Genesis 26. Genesis 26. <clears throat> And verse 5, speaking of Abraham, because that Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So when Abraham ran into the high priest, he was obedient, and he immediately gave him the tenth. You're serving in the role of high priest? I understand. You need to be compensated for your service. Here's the tenth. Abraham wasn't confused. Back to Hebrews 7. I think the scholars have difficulty thinking that Christ could be walking on earth before his incarnation, before he became a man. We should have no problem with this. right? When God created Adam and Eve, he walked with them in the garden. He taught them. They actually, they actually ran and hid from him. Okay. He was on earth. He manifested as a being that they could communicate with. The Bible is very uh, specific, very, what's the word I'm, I'm looking for now, very um, selective in what it, tell, what it recounts. To us. We hear about this great battle, this slaughter of kings. Why do we hear about this battle of the Sodom and Shedlamar and because Abraham was involved. If Abraham, if Lot did, was not captured, that is a battle and, and, uh, and a disaster that we would know nothing about. But because Lot was in the middle, then the Bible talks about it. Okay. And on the way back, Abraham met Melchizedek, and so that's documented. Does it mean that Melchizedek never existed, except for that one moment? Or is it conceivable that Melchizedek has been doing his work from the creation of Adam, serving in the role of high priest until the Levitical priesthood. And we just happen to capture a, a sliver of documentation about, what, about his work. But Abraham understood it, and he paid the tithes. Verse 6. So the, the scholars as well will say that he, it was an offering. It was like he was so grateful and he, he gave an offering. It's not an offering. The scripture is very clear. He paid the priest the tithe. Which is critical because we're coming now into the, the logic that he's going to share with the Hebrews that it's significant that Abraham paid a tithe. It wasn't an offering. It was a tithe. Verse 6. So he was commanded. It's something he had to do. But he whose descent is not counted from them, from the Levites, received tithes of Abraham. Abraham was under commandment. This is something he had to do. And he blessed him that had the promises. Abraham is the one that had the promises. Remember in the Gospels when they said, we have Abraham for our father. Abraham is the, the patriarch. He is the greatest. And now Paul is saying, not really. Somebody greater than Abraham. Verse 7, and without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. I have in my notes here, kaboom. This is a mental explosion for the Hebrews to say that Abraham is less than Melchizedek. There's somebody greater than Melchizedek. Sorry, greater than Abraham. Verse 8, and here... Men that die receive tithes. But there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. So the Melchizedekian order is an eternal order. The Levitical order is a mortal order. So yes, the Levites receive tithes, but they die. And so someone else has to receive the tithes. But here, this order is eternal. Verse 9, and as I may so say, now he's really pushing it, 
Levi also, who receives tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. So, so there's a command to the Israelites to pay the tithes to Levi. But you know what? Levi was under a command to pay tithes to Melchizedek. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Kaboom. Another mental explosion. This is, this is like, whoa, what are you saying? But there's without any contradiction. The less is blessed of the better. If therefore perfection or completion were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Let's just see the significance of this in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 7. Nehemiah 7, and beginning in verse 5. And my God put it in my heart to gather together the nobles and the rulers and the people that they might be reckoned by genealogy. The the Hebrews took genealogy seriously. Verse 5. And I found a register of the genealogy. So this is something they tracked very carefully. Of them which came up at the first and found written therein. So now they're going through the genealogy records. Drop down to verse 61. And these were they which went up also from Tel Mila, Tel Harasha, Carib, Adon, and Immer. But they could not show their father's house, nor their seed, whether they were of Israel. The children of Deliah, the children of Tobiah, the children of Nakoda, 600 and 42. And the priests, the children of Habiah, the children of Koz, the children of Barzillai, which took one of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, to wife, and was called after their name, these sought their registers. So you can imagine how diligently they're trying to show their genealogy. So they're going through the register. These sought their register among those that were reckoned by genealogy, but it was not found. You cannot function in the role of priest if you are not from the tribe of Levi. So we try, we're, we're, we, we just don't see your genealogy here. It was not found, therefore were they as polluted put from the priesthood. Can't fool around. Can't fool around. If you're not a Levite, you cannot serve as priest. So they were ejected like pollution, like garbage. They were thrown out unceremoniously out of the priesthood because they were not from Levi. Back to Hebrews 7. So now there's a change. Verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. So the Torah makes it very clear. It's by genealogy. Uh, Now we're having a new priesthood. That's not by genealogy. Verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertains to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. So there's nothing in the Torah that speaks about Judah serving in the role of priest. King, yes. Priest, no. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah of which tribe Moses, or the Torah, spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. So we have this in, 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 the, in the Psalms, that there will be another priest after the order of Melchizedek. And yet the Torah says nothing about this. So there must be a change in the law. 
there arises another priest who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment. Notice this, this is Melchizedek. Who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. The order of Melchizedek does not end. It's an eternal priesthood. And so this this law that they're following in the Torah is of a carnal commandment. But we have a new order that's of the power of an endless life. For he testifies, which we, we read earlier, you are a priest forever. This is the forever priest. This is the forever priest. It's a different order. It's the Melchizedekian order after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling. And sorry, that's Psalm 110, which was read earlier. says, the Lord has sworn. So it's an oath and he will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. So you want to hold on to Judaism. I'm telling you it's weak and it's unprofitable. The real priesthood is the Melchizedekian priesthood. For the law made nothing perfect. We're going to go on unto perfection. We're going on to completion. The law made nothing perfect. But the bringing in of a better hope did. By the which we draw near unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath. By him that said unto him, the Lord swore and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, a better covenant. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue. So we have one priest in Christ compared to many priests. Why? Because they were not able to continue. Why weren't they able to continue? By reason of death. So the Levitical priests, the Aaronic priests, yeah, they served, but they couldn't continue because they died. There's another priest that doesn't have this weakness. But this man, again, there's no anthropos, but this one, because he continues forever. He has an unchangeable priesthood. So the Melchizedekian order goes on forever, and it's unchangeable. If it was a man, it would be changeable. In fact, if he was a man, he would have to first, as high priest, offer sacrifice for himself and his own sinfulness, and then for, for, for Abraham or others. And after he dies, we'd have to find someone else to replace him. Here, this is saying that Melchizedek was, was one priest, and now Christ is in that order because it's an endless life. Verse 25. And this really, as we come now into Passover, I think this is the most important verse for us. And I'm glad we were able to cover it before Passover. Therefore, he is able, because he has an endless life, because his priesthood is unchangeable, because of his, it's of a higher order, therefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost. There is, there is no limit. There is no, there's, there's nothing he's not able to do in terms of salvation, except if we reject him. So Hebrews, you have a decision to make. Are you going to reject him? But if you see him as your high priest and you hold on to this hope, he is able to save you to the uttermost that come unto God by him. How can he do this? How can he save us to that there's nothing that can take us away from him? Why? Because he lives forever to make intercession. There really is a tabernacle in heaven. There really is a most holy place in heaven. And Melchizedek offers service as a high priest in heaven. And he intercedes for us. He takes his own blood and presents it in the Holy of Holies to make atonement for us. 
So there is nothing that God cannot forgive as long as we don't reject. If we reject Melchizedek, if we reject the Melchizedekian high priest, there's nobody to represent us before God. But as long as we hold on to this hope that he abides a priest forever, it's an endless life. And he is able to make intercession for us to the uttermost. Verse 26. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. This is the Melchizedekian order, the character of Melchizedek, king of righteousness. That's what the name means. He is the king of righteousness. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens. So this is the character of Melchizedek. And not only such a high character, he has an awesome sacrifice. So you take this noble character taking his own blood. Not the blood of goats and lambs and bulls. Separate from sinners and made higher than the heavens. Who needs not daily, as those Levitical priests or those Aaronic high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. So Melchizedek didn't have to do this. And Christ is of this order. To offer up sacrifice first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And this is what we'll be celebrating with Passover. That Christ and the Father loved us so much that this highest of priests humiliated himself and sacrificed himself for us and takes his own, as high priest of this high order, takes his own blood into the Holy of Holies. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law makes men high priests which have infirmity. So the law, so basically, if we were living in ancient Israel and Dylan and Jan were born through Levi, the law would make them priests. That's it. There's nothing we could do to be priests. They would be priests. The law makes it. And we would pay them tithes. And they would do the sacrifices. Here, though, with Melchizedek, the word of the oath is what made him high priest. That God swore, and that's what made him high priest. Which was since the law. So, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, so the, after the law, makes the son who is consecrated forevermore. So this son is now consecrated forevermore. This word consecrate is teleu, which is perfection, which is completion. Let us go on unto perfection. Let us go on unto completion. Here the son is made complete forever. He lives forever and his sacrifice is complete forever. So he's able to save us. To the, there's nothing he can't save us from unless we turn our back on him. And then it's impossible. That's the unpardonable sin. Again, chapter 8 as we conclude. And verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary. He really is in the sanctuary. That's what he's doing now. There is a sanctuary in heaven, and there is a high priest of the Melchizedekian order in heaven, in that sanctuary, interceding for us right now. That's what he does. He's our high priest. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. Let's conclude, brethren, in Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1. And verse 1. 
God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. Verse 8. But unto the Son he says, Your throne, Melchizedek, King of Righteousness, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The Melchizedekian order is a priestly order, it's a kingly order, it's an eternal order. Your throne is forever. And a scepter, meaning rule, of Zedek, righteousness. You have a scepter of righteousness. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved Zedek and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above the Levites. He's above even the Aaronic high priests. He is of the Melchizedekian order. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.